Today, I want to speak to you about killing your anger and the other sins that are closely associated with, this, with it. And I have in mind here the, particularly the sins of wrath and the sins of malice. So those are the three sins, really. Anger, wrath, and malice. Now, we are looking at this issue not because I decided to say, oh, let's deal with this issue. Uh, rather, we are going through the Bible, aren't we, in, in Colossians. Uh, we are continuing exploration of this letter that Paul wrote to the young church at Colossae. And today we have arrived at verse 7 to verse 8. These verses are commanding us to get rid of any sins that ruins our relationship with fellow believers. Uh, in verse 1 to 4, Paul has taught us that living with Christ makes us live for Christ. That's what we learn from verse 1 to 4. Living with Christ, and we do, we share life with Christ, results in us living for Him. Right? Now, from verse 5 all the way to chapter 4, verse 2, Paul tells us how living for Christ looks like in practice. Right? First, living for Christ means killing our sexual sin. We looked at that in verse 5 to verse 6. Let me just refresh you. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So that's the first thing we should do. What does it mean to live, in Christ, live for Christ practically? Well, first of all, make sure you kill your sexual sin. The second thing is what we're going to look at today. The second thing that Paul wants us to do is in verse 7 to verse 8. And I'll just take the first part of verse 8. Let me read verse 7 to verse 8. In this, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice. We'll end there today. Anger, wrath, malice. The key truth point is teaching us just in verse 7 and that first part of verse 8 is simply this. Living for Christ means killing anger and its friends. Anger and its friends. Now you may be wondering, Chola, why are you saying kill? What's all this talk about death? Doesn't verse 7 say, put them all away? Yes, I get that in verse 5 it says, put to death when it comes to sexual immorality. But doesn't verse 7 say, put them all away? These are the sins. That sounds like taking off clothes, isn't it? Not killing, right? Yes. Uh, it is also okay in terms of thinking of these sins as taking off the filthy clothes of anger and his friends. We might say that. But I believe Paul actually here means the same thing in verse 5 as verse 7. He has switched from put to death in verse 5 to put away in verse 7 because what's going on is that he plans to give us a symmetry later of put off and put on when he gets particularly to verse 12. His main point in this section actually is that a key part of putting sin to death in our lives is to remember that we already have a new life 
and a new identity in Christ. When we remember who we are, it moves us to keep our minds on things that concerns our new life and to keep putting on the fruits of the Spirit. So I'm saying that so that I can help you just to to remember that do not think that the language of put away in verse 7 means the sins in verse 8 to 9 are smaller sins compared to sexual sin. No, all sin is in us. And the thought of Paul here is that all sin must be killed. And so we are going to stick with this terminology throughout verse 7 to verse 11. Paul in verse 7 to 8 is saying, Living for Christ means killing anger and its friends. And I want us to learn this truth in two clear commands. I'll just separate these out in two clear commands. The first command from God in these verses is that you must kill your anger and wrath. Kill your anger and wrath. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but you must put them all away. Anger, wrath. Now, I'm combining here wrath and anger, or wrath and anger, because the Bible often swaps them with each other. Uh, It is actually practically impossible to distinguish wrath from anger. Paul, I think, has probably used both words to make sure that there is no stone of anger, right, or stone of wrath left unturned. He wants us to know this, that, that this is about anger in all its forms, we might say. He's saying we must kill any passions or feelings of rage that boils in our hearts or bursts out uncontrollably. We must kill all angry attitude and tempers. And we must not just kill the momentary anger, we must kill any settled feeling of wrath. The feeling of indignation at the actions and words of others. So it's everything. Anger in its full scope. Now, for many of us here, I hope all of us, this command makes perfect sense. Right? Just from your knowledge of the Bible. But think about your non-believing friends, your family members. How would they react to this command that we must, you must kill your anger and wrath? I think they'll find it baffling. They would say, what are you talking about? It is good to be angry. Hunger, I get get my H and A confused here, right? No hunger, right? Anger, as not, they'll say it's a good thing. As, As anger not led people to get rid of corrupt governments, right? As it not brought abuses to an end. Isn't actually the problem in our society is that there is not enough anger. We don't get angry enough. It's very much a British thing to be keep calm, right? People will tell us, there'll be friends who will say, no, we need to get angry at racism. We must get angry at cancer culture. We need to get angry at the cost of living crisis and other things going wrong in our society. Do you see it? Do you see where are they coming from? And I think that is a very challenging question. And I, I, I wish we were looking at this during Bible study because I'm sure we'd spend our Wednesday evening on this one. It's a very challenging question, isn't it? Shouldn't we get more angry, they would say. And I think this question is actually trying to tell us something important 
about anger. Our human anger is driven by a sense of injustice. That's why people get angry. It's because of injustice. Anger and wrath are emotions that say that thing or that person or that community is wrong. Anger always passes a moral judgment. You know, people sometimes like to say, I don't judge anyone. You hear that often, don't you? I don't judge anyone. But listen, if there are things that makes us angry, gets us angry, then we pass judgment all the time. All of us, if we ever get angry, we all judge others. Because anger is a moral judgment. At the root of all anger is that it has been done to us in some way, uh, either because we've been violated personally or someone we love has been violated. That's why people get angry. And we want that injustice to be dealt with, don't we? So we get angry because we live in a world infected by sin, by injustice. It is the sins of other people, first and foremost, that drives us to anger. Right? So they've got a point there. We get angry because of the sins of others. But that's not where we should stop, because the Bible also is very clear that sin is not just out there. Every one of us is a sinner. Sin lives at each of our addresses. It is in every human act. And what this means is that our reaction to the experience of injustice is often very sinful. So we are angry perhaps at the right thing, but we are angry being angry itself, and what we're doing it is sinful. Our angry reaction is not always about honoring God. And that's what makes it sinful. It is nearly always about us. We get angry for us rather than for God. Because sin lives in our hearts. It is very often that we are angry for our self-interest, our pride, our desire for comfort in life. So yes, it is true that not all anger is sinful. There are times when it is the right thing to be angry. Yeah. There is such a thing as righteous and holy anger. And we see glimpses of that in the Bible. For example, Moses was angry with Israel because they refused to trust in God. We read about that in Exodus 16 and Exodus 32, just as two examples. Nehemiah was angry at the abuses that happened in Jerusalem. We read about that in Nehemiah 5. And of course, we know about the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ was angry at the stubbornness of the Pharisees in Mark 3. Christ was angry, indignant, Mark says, at the behavior of the disciples when they stopped the little ones coming to Christ. That is righteous anger. It is anger focused on honoring God. It is being angry for the love of God. It is being angry for his glory, right? For his honor. It is about him, not us. There is such a thing. But it is rare. Very rare. Because you see, nearly all of our anger is sinful anger because of our sinful nature, which drives us to focus on ourselves. Nearly all of our anger is about me, myself, and my law. 
Nearly all anger is sinful, you see, because you cannot get away from living for yourself. Yes, you are born again. Yes, you have a new heart. But there is still indwelling sin in you. You are still a selfish person. On this side of heaven, you are still selfish. You are being transformed every day. The Holy Spirit is at work. He's changing, he's changing you to make you like Him. Right? He is at work renewing you. Right? The change is happening. But you are still work in progress. You are still a self-centered person. Born again, still self-centered. You get angry because you want to play the role of God. I know you don't see it like that, but that's true. You want to have your justice, not God's justice. And you do not see yourself as a sinner in those moments of anger. You know, in truth, as I thought about this, the only human being who walked this planet who had the right to be angry at anything done to him or others is our Lord Jesus Christ. The rest of us are sinners, and so is our anger. So yes, it is true that anger is motivated by our yearning for justice in a fallen world full of suffering, but nearly all of our angry reaction is sinful because it's about us rather than honoring God. And very often, we even get angry at the wrong things. Sometimes we get angry when no injustice has been done to us. We just think. It's just in our head. We are finite and fallen beings. Our analysis of what's going on around us is often flawed. doesn't see the full picture. And so we get angry. And at the human level, we think we're justified. But no. Our finitude limits our understanding of the situation. Therefore, even our anger is nowhere near righteous. But there's another reason why our anger is nearly always sinful. It is because it is against love, isn't it? It's against love. The victims of anger, think about anger. The victims of anger are people we are meant to love and care for most in our lives. As I thought about anger... I realize that you can't be angry with a person you don't know or don't care about. It's a strange thing. We get angry at people because actually we care about their behavior. We know them well enough to care. You have to be in contact with a person before they can make your heart boil. And this is what makes anger so sad, isn't it? Because God has put people in our lives to cherish and love them Anger and wrath are terrible relationship breakers. But it also means that at the heart of anger, you see, is a lot of hypocrisy. Why do I say that? Because it is possible for us to be in a good relationship with people that are distant from us, but be angry with people closest to us. I've seen it. I've seen it. The irony of anger, you might call it. We can be angry at home, right? And smiling at church. We can be nice to visitors in church, right? Who are visiting for the first day. But horrible to people we have known for years in the church. That's anger. Do you see the hypocrisy of anger? 
Anger and wrath makes us less authentic in our relationships. It makes us hypocrites, fake. We appear loving to outsiders when we are not really loving at all. And so for all these reasons, God commands us here through his servant Paul. He says, you must kill all your anger because nearly all your anger is sinful. In this you too once walked, he says, when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, malice. Boy, he's saying, look, do not go around being always angry at people. Don't justify it. Don't say I deserve to be angry because I've suffered. Sin is sin. So put your anger to death, he says. If you're truly born of God, you cannot live in a perpetual state of being always angry at people around you, says Paul. A person who's continuously angry has most likely not truly received the new life from Christ. They've not experienced verse 1 to 4. And from chapter 2, verse 8 to the rest of that, to verse 23. A person who's continuously angry is, is, is still a slave to anger. But if you're a true follower of Christ, you have died to your old self. You used to live under the slavery, under the power of your anger, but you have now died to that life. So Paul is really bringing up here a gospel issue. You see, we think anger is a small thing. But Paul is saying, no, no, he's put it here because it is a gospel issue. Paul is saying, are you a true believer or not? Has the gospel transformed you? Has it changed you? If you are, show it by killing your anger. If not, you are still bound for hell. You're still bound for hell. Now, of course, this leads us to the big question, doesn't it? How can I know that anger is a problem for me? How do I know that this thing that Paul is talking about is something that I need to kill in my life? Now, if we are honest, most of the time we know when we are hungry, right? I think most of the time we do, right? In fact, we may even feel it physically when we are angry. Our breathing quickens. Our heart beats a bit faster. Our body tightens. The experts tell us that. And of course, over time, anger can even generate digestive issues. High blood pressure, headaches, fatigue, and other symptoms. Symptoms we can't pin down even. The point is this, look, is that anger in our lives does not just damage our relationship with God and other people, uh, it actually physically damages us. It physically damages us. Now, sometimes, of course, we are not aware we are angry. So it raises the question, doesn't it? Where should we look for evidence of anger in our lives? Well, we should check how we behave. Just look at how you behave. Or you should ask someone you know very well to speak the truth to you. At the extreme, when people are angry, they do ample things and... To, to things, right? And to people around them. They may even do harm to themselves when they're angry. Anger does that. Angry people shout a lot as well. But not always. But we should be aware anger, angry people shout a lot. They may not be aware they're angry, but they could shout a lot. 
Parents is an area we need to examine ourselves. And some, of course, express it through harsh or deeply critical words. And most people, when they're angry, they just blank you out, don't they? Or they give you a cold shoulder. That's anger. Angry people, of course, often slander others. Angry, being angry leads to unforgiveness. Angry people cannot forgive. That's an area you must ask yourself. You're struggling with forgiveness. That's anger is the issue there. And when we're angry, we lie a lot. We lie a lot. Our sense of injustice justifies our false accusations. And you know, if you want to know whether you are an angry person, or if you are getting alongside someone and you want to know whether anger is an issue for them, then just take a look at their relationships. Take a look at your relationships. Angry people do not have deep and lasting relationships. Because when we are angry, you see, people around us are always on their tiptoes. People know we are sensitive. So they try not to say things to get us mad. I'm not saying angry people don't have people around them. They do. They, but their relationships are not deep. They are not deep. Because angry people, you see, always break what they touch. Because they themselves distrust people. Angry people have a I trust threshold and a deep sense of self-righteousness. How, why else would you be angry if you realize you're a sinner? It's a self-righteousness that leads us to anger. Now, I've gone into some detail here to paint this picture because I want us to become better at detecting patterns of anger in our lives so that we can really obey this command from God to kill our anger. Because remember what I said. If you have ever felt wrong at something done to you, if you have ever known injustice, then you know anger. All of us get angry. And we need to get back, Paul is saying, to killing anger. Not tolerate it. Not dismiss it. It's a gospel issue. Are you converted or not? Deal with your anger. God in verse 8 is commanding us to kill, isn't it? He said, it does not matter why you are angry or how long you've been angry. Kill your anger and wrath now. That's the first command here. The second command here from God in verse 8 is you must kill your malice. Look at that. In this you too once walked, verse 7, when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, and then malice. What is malice? Well, malice is a strong dislike towards other people. It is not wishing them well. It is a bitter feeling within us that want to see other people lose in life. That's malice. And it is this feeling that leads people to abuse or slander fellow human beings. You see, the sin of malice, like our anger or wrath, comes from a sense of being hurt by other people. Malice, unlike anger in that sense, because anger does, is directed people who have hurt us, but malice especially. Malice is always directed at people we feel have hurt us. 
But malice goes beyond anger in another way. It, it, it does not just want injustice resolved. Anger does that. Anger is saying, look, something is wrong, I want justice. That's anger. Malice takes it a step further. I don't just want justice, right? I don't just want that corrected. The root of bitterness, you see, from within the situation, grows into hatred for that person. That's what malice does. Malice says, I want that other person to suffer in some way. They wish to see the person shamed or humiliated or, or even sometimes physically armed. Now, now, as I describe that, many of us are probably thinking, wow, okay. if that's what malice is, praise the Lord. Uh, I don't have that problem. I can sleep okay on this one. Uh, malice, anger, I see it. Malice, I've never experienced it. But be careful there. Be careful there. Many professing Christians are more malicious than we think. The problem is that we just never examine ourselves. You see, we read these words. We've read Colossians a number of times. We read these words in Galatians and other passages. They're just words to us. We have never sat down to ponder. What exactly is this malice? Do I have it? And my answer is we all have it. Who honestly here can say they have never celebrated the misfortune of someone who they feel has caused them to lose in life? Did you not chuckle a bit perhaps when Boris resigned? And thought, hmm, you got what he deserved? That's malice. And most of the time, you see, our malice is quiet. What I mean by that is we want people to fail, right? But we are not explicit about that. What we do is we don't support them in whatever they are doing. And this is actually very common in church. I, I, you know, with my church planting and revitalization interest widely, I've seen it. I have seen people in church, for example, refuse to attend a church service because a new pastor has told them to stand down as a deacon or elder in the church. And they stopped. This is very common in the work of church revitalization, as I said. People withdraw from supporting work because they want to see the ministry to fail. That's malice, and it's very common among believers. But malice or bitterness is also revealed in what we say, isn't it? When we gossip, lie, slander, say critical things or use harsh words, that too is a heart of malice. Emotionally, malicious people always feel negative towards other people. When the name of someone is mentioned, they become uncomfortable. If ever a name has been mentioned and you start shifting a little bit, you are then you're dealing with malice in your heart. The emotions within them are saying, this is a bad person. He does not deserve my time. She wants me to lose in life, and I want her to lose in life. That's malice speaking. You see, like with anger, a bitter person, again, cannot make good friendships. 
Again, I don't mean they don't know people. They do, but they lack depth in these, relationships, these friendships because they, because, because they leave a trail of destruction behind them. And by nature, they hate being called a sinner by anyone. You see, one of, the people who make very good and deep friendship in life are people who are deeply convinced they are sinners. And therefore, they are willing to acknowledge sin. And malicious people cannot confess sin. They must be always noble. But someone may say, look, I get that malice is bad for the person, but why does God regard it as a sin? Come on, surely it does not hurt anyone to be malicious. So why is it a sin? Well, as I've said, malice or bitterness often leads us to treat other people in other sinful ways. Especially with the sins of the mouth listed in verse 8 to 9. We'll look at those in two weeks' time. Slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Uh, seeing that you are put off the old self with these practices. These sins flow from this anger and malice. But it is worse than that, you see. The sinfulness of malice. The sinfulness of malice. Think about it. The sinfulness of malice is that it demeans people who are made in the image of God. It wishes them harm. That's the issue. Here is a person God has created his image. And because of some issue you have with them, you wish, you wish bad to them. That's demeaning. The image of God in that person. Now, many of us do not take this sin seriously. Because we think it's just about expressing ourselves. Or we say to ourselves, I just want to be respected. But beloved, I am laboring on this issue this evening because God sees it differently. When I have a strong dislike to someone or wish them bad, I am demeaning them as a creature made in the image of God. It is a desecration of God's image. It is a form of murder, really. Or hatred is murder, and malice is hatred. It is fundamentally unloving. It is a heinous evil. And it is common in our churches. And the Lord God commands us to love others, not to dislike them. We are not only to love people with actions, but to have genuine feeling for them. Oh, we must get rid of the heresy that teaches that love is merely an action. We don't have a God who agapes us just by action. We have a God who's fond of us, who's genuinely fond of us in Christ. And so God rightly commands us here not only to cure our anger and wrath, but to cure our malice as well, and to do it without delay. Don't miss that. In verse 7 and 8. In these you two once walked when you were living in them. But now, but now, you must put them all away. Don't forget the now. Paul is saying, kill your anger and malice and wrath now. Now that you are in Christ. Now that you are dead to the life of this world. Now that you are triumphed with Christ over the principalities and powers. Now that you are put on the new self. In Christ. Kill them now. 
Don't give these sins as your petty, your pet sins, or as 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 Jerry, um, Mr. Bridges, I always forget his first name, uh, calls them respectable sins. Don't delude yourself that these are somehow small sins. You know, as I would say, get an African axe and cut them to pieces, as it were. So the question is, how do we kill anger and his friends? Well, just briefly, quickly, by going through the five steps, let me just remind you, the five steps I mentioned when we talked about killing sexual sin. We'll keep coming back to those five steps. In fact, there's a six steps, but I'll keep it to five, that we must do. Right? Five is enough. I'm convinced. The six is good, but five. Five steps. Just re- refresh your mind. First, be honest about the sin. Be honest about the sin. That's step number one. Don't deny that anger is a problem for you. If you keep denying that, the entire sermon has just been wasted. Don't deny it. Do not say you are not bitter or have no malice towards anyone. Be honest about your sin. Ask people around you. Believers in the life of the church. People, not, 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 not your husband or your wife. People will be honest, right? You know, people have no, as it were, horse in the, horse in the rest, as it were. They just love you in Christ. They'll give you honest assessment. Tell them to tell you the truth. And humbly accept the assessment. Face your anger and bitterness today. Because this is a gospel issue. Also examine yourself. When do I get angry? How often do I get angry? What injustice do I often see that leads me to get angry? And what is the root of my bitterness or malice? How long has it been going on? You see, many people have an ingrained pattern of anger in their lives, a fortress of anger, as a result of feeling injustice there for a long time. So again, that is an area we need to examine ourselves. Now, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creature. We must always start there. But it's also true that we have history, don't we? We all have a past. And sometimes the past can intrude into the present. And part of growing in Christ is to face the past and surrender our past hurts to Christ. But we cannot deal with the anger or malice unless we are honest about the scale of the issue and how long it has been going on, how long it has been a problem for us in life. So first thing, be honest about the sin. Secondly, be honest about the results of your anger, wrath, or malice. If you carry on in these sins, it's, it is showing that you are still in your old life. Be honest, that these sins repre- what, be honest about what these sins represent before God. Be honest that your anger or wrath is claiming to be God. That your malice is desecrating the image of God. Be honest that this is a serious issue. Be honest that your sin is begging the wrath of God to be unleashed on you. Be honest that you're saying to God, I live for myself and Lord, I don't care about you. Be honest that you carrying on in your sin is saying to God, I am not really converted. I am still under your wrath. Be honest that is what you're doing with your anger and malice. Third thing you should do, accept whatever it will cost you to kill anger or malice. 
as we have said about sexual sin, killing any sin will hurt. Of course it hurts. But it especially hurts when it comes to anger and malice because the root of these sins is deep hurt that we've suffered often in our lives. And so killing these sins is going to hurt even more, perhaps, than killing any other sin. And so we must ask ourselves, am I willing to face the cost of removing my anger or malice? Because the cost may include you going to that person and saying to them, Brother, I have been bitter towards you. I see that now. That's hard. Especially because fundamentally that person may have brought deep hurt to you. I don't, I'm not saying you have to do that. I'm just saying, for some, it may require that to genuinely put this sin to death. And I'm saying it is hard for many people, isn't it? And this is the reason why many of us are, remain angry and malicious. We are not willing to suffer to kill our sin. But beloved, until we are willing to bear such a cost, we are not serious about putting sin to death. We're just pretending that we want to kill sin in our lives, but we're not serious. So be willing to bear the cost. The fourth thing, just to, uh, the fourth thing, and then the fifth, we must pray to God to forgive our anger or malice and make us sensitive to the sinfulness of sin. We need the Holy Spirit to do this in us. As I thought about this subject, I thought this is a difficult thing for me to speak to you about. In fact, I mean, I think if I was just thinking, should I preach on this, I probably wouldn't. But because we're going through the Bible, we're having to deal with subjects that we don't often think about. And therefore, there's a recognition that we need the Holy Spirit to help us, isn't it? Not only to forgive our anger and his friends, but to help us to, to grow in living the opposite life. To give us a heart that loves God and his people, and to put on the fruits of the Holy Spirit. You see, as you repent before God, you should pray through verse 12 to verse 17. Let the fruits listed there be the new clothes you now wear. Patience, love, forgiveness, peace. You see, mortification of sin, as the Puritan called it, putting sin to death, is always about putting off the filthy clothes of sin as we put on the new clothes given to us by the Holy Spirit. I'm emphasizing that because I didn't quite emphasize it when I, was looking, when, I, when I spoke to you about sexual sin and the mortification of that. It isn't simply just about killing. It's also about us taking on the new life. We replace old habits with new habits, as it were. But in this case, we destroy sin. We, we allow the Holy Spirit to destroy our sin as he gives us new patience, love, forgiveness, peace, and all those wonderful fruits. Finally, there's the final thing, and I'll end here. We must keep reminding ourselves of who we are in Christ. Right? We must ask God to help you remember the truth that you're not your malice. You're not your anger. You have a new identity in Christ now. No matter how ugly your sins are, they don't define you if you're truly born again. Because your identity has already been spelled out. In Colossians 2, verse 3 to 4, verse 8 there, to chapter, chapter 3, verse 4 to 8, we, we looked at those. And so refresh yourself in that passage. Remind yourself that you are united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Remind yourself that the life of Christ is your life, that you are sat with Christ in the heavenly places. 
Remind yourself that your sins, past, present, and future, have all been forgiven. Your malice, your anger, all of it has all been forgiven. Remind yourself that you, have, you are sat with Christ now in the heavenly places. You have glory waiting for you. Remind yourself that Christ is coming to take you home. And remind yourself those glorious truths we heard this morning from Pastor Gavin about the character of God and what he has done for us. In fact, as I had the sermon this morning, I thought, oh, maybe I should not preach this sermon this evening because we had such wonderful truths. We just want to think of what we heard about the character of God and the wonder of God. But actually, as I, as I thought about who God is, the Father of mercies, because God is the Father of mercies, we can admit our anger. We can confess our malice. Because he's a father of mercy. So remind yourself those wonderful truths. And resolve to use the means of grace. The preaching of the word, fellowship, Bible reading, Lord's Supper. Let these things help you grow in grace. And may the Lord then help all of us today to cure our anger and his friends. For his glory and for our good. Amen. Amen.